0: Good evening and welcome back to the Haunted Collection with your host, writer, paranormal investigator, and haunted collector, Kevin Kane, back to chill your bones with horror and spooky and ghosts and goblins. Before we get started, just want to remind you to check out MyHauntedDolls.com for any current events going on or any books you might be interested in purchasing. And that leads to my announcement. My newest book is available for purchase now. My Haunted Collection, The Dark Side, is now available for purchase. You can get an autographed copy at myhaunteddolls.com or you can purchase it at amazon.com or on Kindle. This is the follow-up book to my earlier Book, uh, My Haunted Collection. This is a sequel. My Haunted Collection, The Dark Side, tells some stories behind some of the dark, the uh, items with darker histories in my collection. From a doll that was pulled from the ruins of a murder house to a jack in the box clown that loves to scratch. You'll enjoy these stories as they go into the more terrifying items that I have collected over the years so be sure to check that out also be sure to go to my YouTube channel my haunted dolls kevin kane you can find a link to it on my website so just go there and you can follow it check out my videos where i do evp and spirit box sessions and tell some of the tell stories behind some of the dolls that i have and the items i've collected now, without further ado, let's get on to our story. Because it's December and Christmas time, it's time for a Christmas ghost story. A nice spooky one. This one is called The Strange Christmas Game. It was the middle of November when we arrived in Martingdale and found the place anything but romantic or pleasant. The walks were wet and sodden. The trees were leafless. There were no flowers, save a few late pink roses blooming in the garden. It had been a wet season and the place looked miserable. Claire would not ask Alice down to keep her company in the winter months as she had intended. And for myself, the Cronsons were still absent in New Norfolk, where they meant to spend Christmas with old Mrs. Cronson, who had now recovered. Altogether, Martingdale seemed dreary enough, and the ghost stories we had laughed at while sunshine flooded the room became less unreal when we had nothing but blazing fires and wax candles to dispel the gloom. They became more real also when servant after servant left us to seek situations elsewhere, when noises grew frequent in the house, when we ourselves, Claire and I, with our own ears, heard the tramp tramp, the banging and the chattering which had been described to us. My dear listener, you doubtless are free from superstitious fancies you poo-poo the existence of ghosts, and only wish you could find a haunted house in which to spend a night, which is all very brave and praiseworthy, but wait till you are left in a dreary, desolate old country mansion, filled with the most unaccountable sounds, without a servant, with none save an old caretaker and his wife, who, living at the extremest end of the building, heard nothing of the tramp-tramp-bang-bang going on at all hours of the night. At first, I imagined the noises were produced by some evil, disposed persons who wished, for purposes of their own, to keep the house uninhabited. But by degrees, Claire and I came to the conclusion the visitation must be supernatural, and Martingdale by consequence, untenable. Still being practical people unlike our predecessors, not having money to live where and how we liked, we decided to watch and see whether we could trace any human influence in the matter. If not, it was agreed we were to pull down the right wing of the house and the principal staircase. For nights and nights, we sat up till two or three o'clock in the morning. Claire engaged in needlework, I with my reading, and with a revolver lying on the table beside me. But nothing, neither sound nor appearance, rewarded our vigil. This confirmed my first ideas that the sounds were not supernatural, but just to test the matter, I determined on Christmas Eve the anniversary of Mr. Jeremy Lester's disappearance, to keep watch myself in the red bed chamber. Even to Claire, I never mentioned my intention. About ten o'clock, tired out with our previous vigils, we each retired to rest, somewhat ostentatiously, perhaps. I noisily shut the door of my room, and when I opened it half an hour afterwards, no mouse could have pursued its way along the corridor with greater silence and caution than myself. Quite in the dark, I sat in the red room. For over an hour, I might as well have been in my grave for anything I could see in the apartment. But at the end of that time, the moon rose and cast strange lights. "'across the floor and upon the wall of the haunted chamber. "'Hitherto I kept my watch opposite the window. "'Now I changed my place to a corner near the door, "'where I was shaded from observation "'by the heavy hangings of the bed and an antique wardrobe. "'Still I sat on, "'but still no sound broke the silence.' I was weary weary with many nights watching and tired of my solitary vigil. I dropped off at last into a slumber, from which I awakened by hearing the door softly open. "'John?' said my sister, almost in a whisper. "'John, are you here?'
1: "'Yes,
0: Claire,' I answered. "'But what are you doing up at this hour?' Come downstairs, she replied. They are in the oak parlor. I do not need any explanation as to whom she meant, but crept downstairs after her, warned by an uplifted hand of the necessity for silence and caution. By the door, by the open door of the oak parlor, she paused, and we both looked in. There was the room we left in darkness overnight, with a bright wood fire blazing on the hearth, candles on the chimney piece. The small table pulled out from its accustomed corner, and two men seated beside it, playing in cribbage. We could see the face of the younger player. It was that of a man about five and twenty, of a man who had lived hard and wickedly, who had wasted his substance and his health, who had been while in the flesh, Jeremy Lester. It would be difficult for me to say how I knew this, how in a moment I identified the features of the player with those of the man who had been missing for forty-one years. Forty-one years that very night. He was dressed in the costume of a bygone period, his hair was powdered, and round his wrists were ruffles of lace. He looked like one who, having come from some great party, had sat down after his return home to play cards with an intimate friend. On his little ring finger there sparkled a ring, and in the front of his shirt there gleamed a valuable diamond. There were diamond buckles in his shoes, and according to the fashion of his time, he wore knee breeches and silk stockings, which showed off advantageously the shape of a remarkably good leg and ankle. He sat opposite the door, but never once lifted his eyes to it. His attention seemed concentrated on the cards. For a time there was utter silence in the room, broken only by the momentous counting of the game. In the doorway we stood holding our breath, terrified and yet fascinated by the scene which was being acted before us. The ashes dropped on the hearth softly and like snow. We could hear the rustle of the cards as they were dealt out and fell upon the table. We listened to the count, 15-2, 15-4, and so forth, but there was no other word spoken till at length the player, whose face we could not see, exclaimed, I win. The game is mine. Then his opponent took up the cards, sorted them over negligently in his hand, put them close together, and flung the whole pack in his guest's face, exclaiming, "'Cheat! Liar! Take that!' "'There was a bustle and confusion, "'a flinging over of chairs and fierce gesticulation, "'and such a noise of passionate voices mingling "'that we could not hear a sentence which was uttered. "'All at once, however, "'Jeremy Lester strode out of the room in so great a hurry "'that he almost touched us where we stood.' out of the room and tramp tramp up the staircase to the red room whence he descended in a few minutes with a couple of rapiers under his arm when he entered the room he gave as it seemed to us the other man his choice of the weapons and then he flung open the window and after ceremoniously giving place for his opponent to pass out first he walked forth into the night air "'Claire and I following. "'We went through the garden and down a narrow winding path "'to a smooth piece of turf, "'sheltered from the north by a plantation of young fir trees. "'It was a bright moonlight night by this time, "'and we could distinctly see Jeremy Lester measuring off the ground. "'When you say three, he said at last to the man "'whose back was still toward us, They had drawn lots for the ground, and the lot had fallen against Mr. Lester. He stood thus with the moonbeams falling upon him, and a handsomer fellow I would never desire to behold. One, began the other, two. And before our kinsman had the slightest suspicion of his design, he was upon him, and his rapier through Jeremy Lester's breast. At the sight of that cowardly treachery, Claire screamed aloud. In a moment, the combatants had disappeared. The moon was obscured behind a cloud, and we were standing in the shadow of the fir plantation, shivering with cold and terror. But we knew at last what had become of the late owner of Martingdale, that he had fallen, not in fair fight, but foully murdered by a false friend. When late on Christmas morning I awoke, it was to see a white world, to behold the ground and trees and shrubs all laden and covered with snow. There was snow everywhere, such snow as no person could remember having fallen for forty-one years. It was on "'Just such a Christmas as this that Mr. Jeremy disappeared,' remarked the old sexton to my sister, who had insisted on dragging me through the snow to church, whereupon Claire fainted away and was carried into the vestry, where I made a full confession to the vicar of all we had beheld the previous night. At first that worthy individual, rather inclined to treat the matter lightly, but when I when a fortnight after the snow melted away and the fir plantation came to be examined, he confessed there might be more things in heaven and earth than his limited philosophy had dreamed of. In a little deer space just within the plantation, Jeremy Lester's body was found. We knew it by the ring and the diamond buckles and the sparkling breast pin. And Mr. Cronson, who in his capacity as magistrate, came over to inspect these relics, was visibly perturbed at my narrative. "'Pray, Mr. Lester, did you in your dreams see the face of, of the gentleman, your kinsman's opponent?' "'No,' I answered. He sat and stood with his back to us all the time. "'There is nothing more, of course, to be done in the matter,' observed Mr. Cronson. "'Nothing,' I replied. "'And there the affair would doubtless have terminated, "'but that a few days afterwards we were dining at Cronston Park, "'and Claire all of a sudden dropped the glass of water "'she was carrying to her lips, exclaiming, "'Look, John! There he is!' "'Rose from her seat and with a face as white as the tablecloth "'pointed to a portrait hanging on the wall.' I saw him for an instant when he turned his head towards the door as Jeremy Lester left it, she exclaimed. That is he. Of what followed after this identification, I have only the vaguest recollection. Servants rushed hither and thither. Mrs. Cronson dropped off her chair into hysterics. The young ladies gathered round their mama. Mr. Cronson trembling like one in an ague fit attempted some kind of an explanation while Claire kept praying to be taken away, only to be taken away. I took her away, not merely from Cronson Park, but from Martingdale. Before we left the latter place, however, I had an interview with mister Cronson, who said the portrait Claire had identified was that of his wife's father, the last person who saw Jeremy Lester alive. He is an old man now, finished Mr. Cronson, a man of over 80 who has confessed everything to me. You won't bring further sorrow and disgrace upon us by making this public a matter of public. I promised him I would keep silence, but the story gradually oozed out and the Cronsons left the country. My sister never returned to Martingdale. She married and is living in London. Though I assure her there are no strange noises in my house, she will not visit Bedfordshire where, quote, little girl, she wanted me so long ago to think of seriously, is now my wife and the mother of my children. Well, it was a sort of creepy story, but a classic nonetheless. If you hadn't guessed, that was probably a story from somewhere around the turn of the century. And I can only assume that the weapons described are actually swords that were used in the death. But nonetheless, it's a nice little classic creepy story. But if you're looking for something a little more bloody, do not be discouraged because I do have... Such a story here. This one is called, The Bloody Axe. I remember that Christmas when I was eight years old as if it had happened yesterday. I remember how I would lie very still under the moth-eaten quilt my mother, mother had made. I was wide awake and listening for those familiar sounds. The thump of the front door closing, the clump, clump, clump of my father's mud-caked boots on the stairs, and the sound that to this day still fills me with revulsion and horror, drip, drip, drip. Then my father would pass by my doorway, and the light from the hallway would cast his shadow on the bedroom wall and the shadow of the bloody axe he carried in his hands. The next morning I would eat my watery oatmeal in the wintry chill of our kitchen and ask my mother very slowly and carefully, Where was Daddy last night? She would just look at me with her sad gray eyes. I will never forget the pain and torment in those eyes but she never said a word. After breakfast I would set about doing the chores on our little farm. My father never did much work on the farm. He always seemed to be busy with other matters. On those chill, windy mornings as the snow began to fall, I had a lot of time to think. At school I couldn't pay much attention to my lessons. I always lost in my own troubling thoughts. When I got home in the evening, I would arrive just in time to see my father leaving. His axe clutched tightly in his hands. I rarely saw my father during daylight hours, and at night all I ever saw was his shadow. I can still vividly recall that terrible night when I was awakened by the sound of the shutters on my bedroom window, clattering in the screaming December winds. When I got up to close the shutters, I happened to glance over at the barn and noticed a shadow in the darkness. It was my father, and he was putting something into the feed box we used for cattle. I returned to bed and lay awake long into the night, puzzled by just what I had seen. Eventually, I fell into a tortured and troubled sleep. The next day, my curiosity got the better of me. I took the key that hung on a hook in the kitchen and opened the feed box. I remember standing and staring for several seconds at the foul-smelling, Bloody pulp inside, trying to understand why my father would put parts of a slaughtered animal into the feed box. Then I noticed something that struck horror into my very soul. Jutting up out of the bloody offal was a severed human hand. From that moment, I was filled with a nameless dread. I no longer looked at my parents with trust, but with a dark, creeping suspicion. I began to notice things that had previously escaped my attention. Newspaper headlines that spoke about brutal murders and discovered bodies. Overheard conversations about a bloodthirsty fiend on the loose. Finally, I heard a boy at school utter two words that repeated over And over in my tortured mind. Axe murderer. That night, my sleep was invaded by shapeless horrors. In these nightmares, I saw two images that haunted me constantly the face of my father and an axe dripping with blood. Unable to sleep, I got out of bed and crept downstairs. Taking my father's axe from the fireplace, I dimmed the lights and crouched in the darkness at the top of the stairs. It seemed an eternity before I heard the key in the lock and the front door swing open, then close. I listened for those familiar footsteps on the stairs. Stepping out of the darkness, I raised the axe above my head and brought it crashing down. In the eerie silence that followed, I listened for the sound of any movement from my parents' bedroom. I hoped against hope that my mother had heard nothing. The only sound I heard was the creaking of the floorboards beneath my feet and the pounding of my heart. I looked for the last time at the headless body that crumpled at the bottom of the stairs, then quietly tiptoed back to my bed. Early the next morning, I was awakened by the sound of strange voices in our hallway. Silently, I crept to the top of the stairs and peered down at the scene below. A group of policemen were crowded around my father's bloody corpse. My mother was standing beside them, watching silently. No one was paying any attention, but when she glanced up, she noticed me. Then very briefly, very discreetly, she gave me a knowing wink. Uh, That was a good story to end with there. So, thank you so much again for tuning in. Again, I ask that you please check out My Haunted Dolls and my new book My Haunted Collection, The Dark Side at MyHauntedDolls.com If I don't speak to you before Christmas gets here, I hope you have a very merry Christmas. Enjoy some eggnog and presents, but By all means, don't let the season stop you from sharing those nice, spooky, ghostly stories around the hearth. Until we meet again, have a happy haunting.